Hello and welcome to Lighthouse in the Abyss. It's been a uh, while between episodes here, um, but I've received some encouragement from a friend to keep going, so here we are again. Um, I took a break due to frustrations with the app that I was using to record, um, and coupled with just some interesting life happenstances as well. But uh, given that there's interest, I will persevere. Um, I suppose I'll address first what I recorded in the previous episode, so because, you know, to those who may be listening who are of a, an orthodox bent, the notion of reading out um, the text of a, a so-called Gnostic gospel, um, certainly a non-canonical, a non-synoptic gospel, um, to some is considered, you know, uh, a heresy. And I don't present these things um, from the standpoint of, you know, like I, I, I don't believe that the uh, Gnostic Gospels uh, have equal weight as the Synoptic Gospels. Of course I don't. I actually investigated... Uh, this particular thing quite thoroughly I've done in recent times I've been quite um, interested in the uh, textual criticism and and sort of academic apologetics of uh, a guy called Daniel B Wallace who's a a very renowned um, New Testament scholar who uh, has debated uh, Bart Ehrman who is a a textual critic as well, but on the the uh, let's say anti-New Testament side of the argument or anti-Christian side of the argument, I won't say anti-Christ side of the argument. Um, but yeah, so Daniel B. Wallace, very very fascinating character, has a whole bunch of, of talks on YouTube where he really breaks down, you know, why uh, we can really believe that the New Testament that we have is, uh, it's not a corruption, it's not, you know, it doesn't show signs of heavy editing over hundreds of years, it's actually, so, I mean, a a few fun things, now I'm going to get this number wrong, but right enough, I think it's around 5,834 New Testament manuscripts in Greek, dating between 100 AD and, uh, 1000 AD or, or maybe 1200 AD I can't remember um, it's a lot it's a lot a lot now some of them are uh, full manuscripts some of them are partial manuscripts and were you to uh, stack all that paper that we have of these various manuscripts on top of each other it would reach as high as four empire state buildings uh, so it's what he refers to as an embarrassment of riches um, and so with Greek, evidently you can write, um, so most, most of the, uh, variations between the different New Testament manuscripts are grammatical. So in Greek, uh, particularly this form of ancient Greek, you can put the words in any order and retain the meaning of the sentence. So, um, most of the variation is in that. It's literally the order, the order of the words. There's a few um, semantical and, and syntactical differences, 
but largely they correspond with like the, it's a really really tight correspondence like 0.95 or something like that and then where the variations are tends to be on it's it's a lot of uh like little details um so you know what age uh, somebody lived to well, okay, no, that's that's more of an Old Testament thing, whereas the ages. Um, but yeah, there's there's numerical values that uh, show some variation, and a few other bits and pieces as well. A couple of little bits that certainly we can see. Um, so there's a there's some variation. The later you go, there are certainly additions. So something that I was quite surprised to find out, you know, uh, is that the story uh, of the um, uh, the prostitute or the adulterer brought before um, Christ, and they were, and the mob were, you know, calling to stone her and, you know, very famous story, like let he who was without sin cast the first stone, doesn't actually appear in the earliest manuscripts. So, um, you know, even though it's very much something we can picture Christ doing, um, it's not necessarily one that he did because uh, it doesn't appear anywhere in the earliest manuscripts. And we've certainly got enough of those to be able to say, you know, what was and wasn't an addition. Now, I mean, that's not to say that we can ever say with 100% surety that it didn't happen because, you know, the, a story like that might have gone out, you know, in one direction and being kept by word of mouth, you know, in one particular area and then somehow made its way back. Uh you know, or another argument might be that, you know, a, uh, a, a monk or a scribe who was, you know, um, writing out these scriptures had a, a vision or a dream where this played out and, you know, believed that to have been uh, inspiration from the Holy Spirit or a divine flash of revelation from God and put it in. I mean, the story itself is... You would have to really go to pretty extreme lengths uh, to suggest that that one is like, you know, conspiracy theory. I mean, I, I, I love conspiracy theories because it's a really interesting insight into how people think and uh, where, where people will try to make connections and what they'll use to justify said connections. And, you know, I'm not... Um, I'm not anti-conspiracy theories either because I think there's real conspiracy theories, but I'm, I'm getting sort of further and further away from what I'm talking about here. There's a, a common uh, academic and sort of atheist uh, dismissal of scripture, which is to say that, well, you know, these, like, let's say that you did have the original word of God at the start. Well, you know, it's been translated and retranslated it's been copied and recopied and people have edited it and people have made additions and you know how do you know that what you're dealing with isn't just some you know bastardized thing that the church put together as a mind control device to deceive the populace on mass it's a very common line of thinking and the field of textual criticism um 
actually demonstrates that the fidelity with which we have the New Testament uh, is unbelievably good. So, you know, we've got manuscripts. There aren't, to this day, there aren't any first century manuscripts, as in nothing within the first hundred years of Christ, so zero to 100 AD. Um, but we do have texts, surviving fragments, and I, I don't know when the earliest full manuscript is. I would assume it's probably around 150, um, but please don't quote me on that. But certainly we've got things from as early as 100 AD. And what's so fascinating about all this, because I went, I went deep down the rabbit hole on this. Um, what's so fascinating is the fact that this is the event in history of which there is more textual evidence, more witness accounts, more just... It, we, we don't have surviving manuscripts attesting to any event in history more than we have uh, the death of Christ or the life of Christ. And that in itself is very interesting. I mean, 5,834 manuscripts, or I think it might be 5,870 uh, now. It's a very large number given that, you know, a lot of this was like the earliest ones are like papyrus and then you've got, I mean, this is all biodegradable um, and this many fragments have survived, which suggests that many, many more were in circulation at the time. These were all handwritten. I mean, this, this is prior to, uh, you know, the movable printing press, obviously, the, the Gutenberg Revolution, which doesn't happen until Martin Luther, which is a whole other thing that I definitely want to talk about. Um, I mean, maybe I'll talk about that in a little bit because I don't really know what to talk about today. Other than this, um, it is all incredibly fascinating to me. Uh, there's, there's so many copies of this document that they are tied together so closely. Um, and then additionally to that, so what uh, Daniel Wallace, who I highly recommend you check out, what he talks about is the fact that between any of these manuscripts that they have, any of them, you could pick any two, there are no major theological points of difference. So a way to think about that is if you took from this large number of manuscripts uh, all the complete ones and gave them to, you know, one each to a whole bunch of different Christians and they all learnt and read from that that if you got them together they wouldn't disagree on any major theological point of difference at least insofar as what uh the script itself says of course we know that there are multiple interpretations of what it says but uh certainly from the standpoint of they would all for all intents and purposes be reading the same book and Yeah, nobody uh, doesn't 
nobody questions the existence of Pliny the Elder, Josephus, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Pythagoras, uh, you know, these remarkable figures of the ancient world. And what's quite fascinating is that um, the, they, we have far less evidence for their existence than we do, uh, and I mean in terms of physical evidence, there's far less to attest to them, there's far less surviving manuscripts than there are for Christ, which is fascinating in its own right. And, you know, well, you might readily say, well, yeah, but, like, none of these people were claiming to be the, the son of God. And, you know, fair enough. Um, but it is fascinating, nonetheless, that... Uh, that there's just so much. And then... You know, in addition to that, there there is other um, archaeological evidence that, you know, begins to show up. There's, um, you know, fragments of stone uh, that mention Pilate. There's... Uh, we have, you know, remains of... of... Uh, crucified... Um, so, like... Uh, there's a, a fragment of um, a foot bone that's been, you know, nailed to a piece of wood that's, you know, presumably a surviving uh, piece of uh, crucifixion material that certainly confirms that the uh, Romans were crucifying people around that time. And there's, you know, there's other bits and pieces, you know, you can look into these things. I mean, I think I've recommended in previous episodes that people check out uh, Exodus Patterns of Evidence, a documentary which is on Netflix that's actually obviously about the Exodus story, which is just fascinating. Um, but what else? There's so much to talk about with all of this. It's really, really interesting because, you know, the history of different Bible translations, um, I've been looking at so where you sort of fall on your Bible translation. Now, presumably, if you're listening to a podcast such as this, then your primary language is English, in which case you're looking at, well, the most famous uh, and most widely distributed number one English translation is the King James, followed by the New International Version, uh, and then you start, you know, falling into some of uh, the other ones like uh, the NASB, the NKJV, which is the New King James. Um, so NASB is New American Standard. Um, uh, ESV, English Standard Version, that's, that's my preferred version. Um, and a myriad of others. I mean, you know, there's New Living Translation, there's the Net Bible, New English Translation. Um, and on and on it goes. And on the one hand, you have to think about these things from, I mean, you don't have to think about these things. I think about these things. Uh, and maybe you'd enjoy hearing about these things, presumably if you're listening. But there's, when it comes to the translations, there's the means in which it was translated. So there's the, um, you know, the, the difference between a essentially literal translation, uh, which is a formal equivalence, 
or a dynamic translation, um, so dynamic equivalence. And that's uh, the difference between how closely do you stick to word-for-word uh, word retaining the existing... Um, oh gosh, how do, I, how do I describe this without a really, really fixed example? Because um, I don't have anything in front of me. I've got no notes. I, I never know what I'm going to talk about. I just hit record and start blabbing into my phone, and that's how I do this. And quite possibly, this would be a better podcast if I added some structure, but I'm inherently lazy, so um, <laughs> we'll just go with this. Uh, so a formal equivalence is basically you take the original manuscript and you translate it word for word into English and you tidy up uh, the grammar but with the minimal amount of force necessary to render it in English. So basically you're trying to, you know, do the minimal amount of changes to get it into a readable form of English. Uh, you take, you're really trying to retain the specific meaning of each of the words um, and the specific kind of structure of the statement. Whereas a dynamic equivalence is a bit more kind of uh, poetical. It's a, it's a lot more loose. And so what they do is they'll do, it's as if you take an essentially literal translation and you might end up with a sort of a clunky sentence and then you go, well, if I was going to write that in beautiful English that just read really nicely to the average English person that retained the heart and the meaning but maybe lost a little bit in um, the specifics, then that's a dynamic equivalence. So it's going for readability over literal accuracy. I may have talked about this in a previous episode. I'm not sure. So apologies if I'm retreading old ground. So that in itself is a translation methodology that should influence how you choose which translation. And so the ESV, my favorite, is a formal equivalence. It's trying to be as close to the text as possible. It's trying to render the English as close to the original Hebrew for the Old Testament and uh, the original Greek for the New Testament. Uh, the most popular dynamic um, equivalent in the uh, equivalent translation in the world is the New International Version, the you know preferred evangelists Bible, NIV, which uh, the, the King James only purists like to refer to as the notoriously inaccurate version. Um, but then, I don't know if you're ever just bored and want to see how crazy some people are about these things, go and look up the King James only movement online because there's a million uh, websites just dedicated to, you know, King James is the one true, divinely inspired, word of God, unalterable, uh, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit, retained through the generations, and it is perfect, and to question it is heresy, and all these new um, translations are the work of the devil. This is how some people feel about the King James versus other um, translations. And there's quite a lot that's funny about that. I mean, I am quite positive on the King James because I see it as a beautiful historic document that's influenced uh, 
you know, uh, hundreds of years. Because so uh, King James, sixteen oh one, ish. Uh, it's influence. It's been around for hundreds of years, and it's massively influenced the English speaking Western Christian world. And it was our Bible for many, 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 many years. And that's fantastic. Now, it does have some issues. Uh, chief amongst those issues being that... So, um, it's not in the translation to English. It was actually in the translation um, into Greek and Latin. So... I'm going to get some of these details wrong. So apologies if I if I muck this up. But so prior because it was a committee that um that translated the King James into English from a couple of manuscripts. Um one of those manuscripts was so it was Erasmus who was doing a um Greek and Latin uh translation he was one guy working under, you know, extreme pressure to basically get this uh, translation done and out. And he was uh, fearful that somebody else was going to beat him to the punch in terms of getting out the sort of uh, best best translated manuscript. He was using quite a late manuscript, so it was like a 1000 AD one. Um, so there's... Oh, what are they? There's a Synecdoche. There's a few. So there's these famous manuscripts um, that have been used as the basis for particular documents. So things like the Textus Receptus and, um, yeah, I should have done some research and get all these details fresh in my mind if I was going to try and talk about these things. Now I just sound like you know a pseudo intellectual who's you know half memorized a, a bunch of half fact and I'm not getting them right. I'm going to have a sip of coffee here. So, what ends up happening is that you get this uh, rushed job using a late manuscript that generates the, the King James. And what's interesting about it is it's actually a really good job. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not shitting on the King James because... It gets a lot of things quite right and renders them beautifully and poetically, but there are some things in it which are problematic, not the least of which being that, being that it was translated from older manuscripts, those are the, the manuscripts that have uh, retained the most editing and the most additions. And then when we go back and compare, you know, the earliest manuscripts of, uh, you know, particularly Gospels like Matthew and Mark, there's whole chunks added that weren't there. And that's problematic because, you know, if we can see clearly in history because we can, we've got all these manuscripts and we can go, oh, look, all the early ones are like this, all the middle period ones are like this, and all the late period ones are like this. And you can see over time where things have crept in and where things have changed and where things have been lost. And um, I mean, that matters. Now, so let's... Uh, I'll, I'll zoom out a bit and look at, you know, when we talk about the Bible, because, you know, some people just think the Bible is the Bible, 
and maybe there's different translations, which is just how we're translating, but it goes way, way deeper than that. It's so fascinating. So uh, with the Old Testament, you've got, uh, you know, two main streams, which are the Masoretic and the Septuagint. And if you're Catholic, you basically think Septuagint is 100%. That's, that's the thing. And what's interesting about the Septuagint is that it brings in all the apocryphal books as well. Um, so the Septuagint, so-called because it was translated by 70 or 72, both biblically significant numbers, uh, people, and uh, what contains, it's got very, very different um, renderings. And it's thought to have been um, an older manuscript, so it's thought to have stopped undergoing any changes sort of around uh, 200 or 300, whereas the Masoretic text, which is the one... So the Masoretic Old Testament is the one that the Jews favour. Um, so if you were to go out and buy a, a Hebrew Bible, which would just be the Old Testament necessarily because they don't recognise the New Testament, unless they're Messianic Jews, which is a different story, because Messianic Jew is basically a Christian... Uh, they would be using the Masoretic text. And there was this group called the Masoretes who, uh, you know, kept uh, this other manuscript. So you've got like two, two schools or two trains, two threads, two branches of, um, of Old Testament along the way somewhere. And the ones that have been... And it gets quite interesting in terms of what happens between these two as well. So the earliest copy of the Septuagint uh, doesn't have vowel marks. And there's... Oh, God, am I going to have to explain that whole thing? I probably do. Okay, so Hebrew uh, is a 22-letter alphabet. Um, It's got then an additional... Uh, is it five, five final words or five final letter forms? So the 22 primal letters and then another five um, final letters. And none of them, I mean, some of them have a vowel sound, uh, but the way that you know, ancient Hebrew was written, the way that So let's take the Torah, for example. When the original Torah was written, it didn't contain vowel marks. So there were certain letters that are vowels, but a lot of vowel sounds would have to be, you know, filled in or interpreted. So um, an example of that would be like A-D-M or Aleph Dalet Mem is Adam or Adama. So, which Adam meaning man, those, those things are interchangeable. But then, you know, there might be other words depending on, so you might say like, or oh, Adom, you know, or Adim. So, you know, a different, you could put a different vowel in between the D and the M and it becomes a different word. And then there's a tradition in the Jews of, you know, there are multiple interpretations of Torah because there's, so many different vowels you can put in between 
the consonants that are in the text that will reveal different meanings and that that's actually a design feature, not a design flaw. There's a whole tradition about this. And so the oldest Septuagint doesn't have vowel marks, but with uh, the Masoretic text, they added standardized vowel marks um, over the course of history somewhere in the first thousand years after Christ. So uh, the Masoretic text evidently was uh, continued to receive edits all the way up to about 1000 AD. And that's actually one of the arguments against using the Masoretic text um, is the fact that it, because it started being um, preserved with vowel marks, so effectively they standardized what vowels would go onto the text itself so you have like the standard text and then they write above and below uh, these little marks that tell you which vowels go in the gaps and that leads to a particular interpretation of the words and there's actual discrepancies between the Masoretic and the Septuagint in terms of what uh, words or what you know meanings are being applied to particular things and then you take it the extra layer of conspiracy level, which is, uh, you know, the people saying that, and I mean, this is very much, um, let's say, you know, the Catholics versus the Jews in this respect. The Catholics will say that, you know, the Septuagint uh, is the right one um, because, you know, the interpretation of that, it contains a lot more that seems to prophesy uh, Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There's a claim that the Jews have, uh, you know, done a bit of a whitewash on the Masoretic and influenced the interpretation of that scripture so as to hide more of the prophecies that Jesus apparently fulfilled. Now, I haven't studied these two texts anywhere near close enough to say whether or not that's true. I've read a lot of the websites, I've seen some of the evidence, and it's it's an interesting idea. Um, I have a hard time believing that the uh, Jews, out of spite, would intentionally garble their own, like destroy their own faith and put in a fallacious interpretation of their own scripture just to deny Jesus. I mean, that just seems to me to be so far-fetched that it beggars belief. Um, and, you know, we... We have to be careful because you know there is there's a lot of bad blood between you know the Roman Catholic Church and the Jews. So you know anti-Semitism plays a part in these arguments, undoubtedly. Um, me, I'm coming at it with I you know I mean the only horse I have in the in the race is Jesus Christ Himself. You know I don't buy into a particular church. I don't buy into a particular uh, interpretation so I feel like I'm coming at this with reasonably fresh eyes and a reasonably uh, objective standpoint as much as anybody speaking from their own position can have an objective standpoint which is to say not at all I suppose my subjectivity is just a bit more freeform and uh, it's a it's a lot less entrenched let's put it that way I don't have a uh, a team that my family's belonged to for hundreds of years that I owe allegiance to so, okay, so Septuagint and Masoretic text. Uh, 
what's fascinating and what really vindicated the Catholic Church before all the controversy around them, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which were found, so these papyrus scrolls that were found uh, sealed in jars um, in some caves near Qumran, uh, which is very close to Jerusalem, uh, in 19... Oh, God, were they in the 40s or the 60s? I think Dead Sea Scrolls were 45, and then the Nag Hammadi scriptures were later. Oh, God. Again, things I should look up before I start trying to talk about them when I haven't read that. Like, I've read all these things, but I, you know, over periods of time in the last few years, so my recollection of, of details is, yeah, just don't quote me on anything. Um... So they find uh, these these manuscripts, and it's one of the things that really unlocks to us all uh, the information that we know about the Essenes. And there's a theory that Christ himself was an Essene. Um, there's well, there's lots of theories anyway. But uh, these documents show up, and they're very fascinating because they give us a real insight into because we've got like their ledgers. You know, we 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 know about like what food they were eating and you know, what the kind of political climate of the time was. There's all kinds of stuff. It's not just scripture that's being preserved. But then what's fascinating is that they're, and these are super devout Jews, like crazy devout Jews, you know, they, they, I mean, these days we say that a crazy devout Jew is like a Hasid, Hasidic Jew, you know, with the forelocks and the stuff and the thing, um, the Teflon, the, you know, box that they wear on their head and on their arm, They've got a whole a whole thing going on. Uh, the Essenes would have basically pointed at them and just gone, "These these people are uh, super liberal. They're way too relaxed. They're they're not hardcore enough." That's how hardcore the Essenes were. These were some hardcore Jews, and their manuscript uh, actually lines up more with the Septuagint than it does with the Masoretic text, which is very curious. And then the other argument for the Septuagint is the fact that in the New Testament where you have, uh, you know, Christ and Paul and I think uh, Peter at various points making reference to the Old Testament, uh, that their Old Testament readings tend to reflect the Septuagint more than they do the Masoretic text. So it would seem that of the Old Testament getting around at that time that it more closely mirrored the Septuagint than it does the Masoretic text. It's a pretty good case for the Septuagint. Um, I need to do more research on this and decide how I feel because so where this plays into into the modern texts is so when you translate a Bible you need to decide which manuscripts are you going to translate from and with the Old Testament, you've got a very big decision to make because you really have to choose out of the Masoretic Manuscript or the Septuagint. And that is a very big functional difference. And I'm sure that the Septuagint's got its problems as well. I've uh, read some of the articles. It's, it's hard because disinformation on the internet is a really big problem. You know, so many people are just so obsessed with their tribe and the conspiracy theories of, you know, people attacking their tribe that you go online and to try and get really good, solid academic research about this and not just a bunch of, you know, people getting extremely angry and, and 
making extremely one-sided cases, uh, it's difficult, you know. Um, so you go online, you'll find a lot more arguing for Septuagint primacy over Masoretic primacy. But then, interestingly, when you look at the so-called Protestant Bibles, they all use the Masoretic text. So uh, my beloved ESV, uh, the King James, the original King James as well, the 1601 uh, King James, and the revisions that happened in the 1700s and uh, 1800s, uh, all used the Masoretic text as their basis. So um, effectively it's the uh, Catholics and Orthodox use the Septuagint, which brings in the Apocrypha as well, so um, books like 1 Maccabees, um, but then you've also got uh, sorry I got distracted by the dog barking there um, well yeah so your Catholic Bibles and Orthodox Bibles will be based on the Septuagint which you know is, is that and then um, your King James Bible um, and all you know so called Protestant Bibles so um, you know coming after Martin Luther uh, tend to use the Masoretic. So NIV uses Masoretic, ESV uses Masoretic, uh, NASB Masoretic, NKJV Masoretic, uh, on and on it goes. So most dominantly, if you go down to your local Christian shop and buy a Bible, chances are you're picking up a copy of the Masoretic text. And it's on my list of, of to-dos to, to um, you know, actually study. I mean, I'm still, I'm still studying my ESV, you know. I'm not familiar enough with that to start moving on to things like getting a copy of the Septuagint and working my way through that as well. I hope to have time over the, over the years to come to get these things done because I think it's important to know. But, you know, do I think that any of this is essential to salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think it's important because it gets us closer to the truth, it gets us closer to the heart of things, and that the pursuit of truth should be absolutely the goal of every Christian, for sure. Um, but if you have neither the time nor inclination, don't worry about it. You know, I'm certainly not uh, wanting to create anxiety in people's uh, hearts or minds that they're reading the wrong Bible. There is no wrong Bible. You can be, if you're reading the King James, that's the Bible. If you're reading the Septuagint, that's the Bible. If you're reading, you know, ESV, NIV, they're all good. Like, like I said, you know, the the main thing is that the New Testament is extremely accurate. Um, whether you use so the King James, all right, let's let's jump into New Testament land. Where you pick your Greek New Testament will very much influence what you put in the book. Because if you take 1000 AD versus 100 AD as your manuscript, there's a lot of extra stuff in the 1000 AD. Not a lot, a lot, but like a little, enough. There's just extra lines here and there that do change the meaning, and there's a few little bits and pieces of like certain numbers have been changed. Um, nothing too drastic. It's not going to matter. You know, if, if I read my... ESV and you read your King James and we get together and have a discussion about what's in the book we're not disagreeing on 
much at all. There's only, you know, one or two little things. And they're not a big deal. So ultimately, the Bible is the Bible. You'll be okay. How much time have I done here? 40 minutes. How have I talked about this for 40 minutes? It's ridiculous. Um, Okay, what else merits discussion? I mean, I suppose I should close off this topic of uh, translations. So... Well, what we've talked... Ah, because this all came about because I read from the Gnostic Gospels. Okay, so Gnostic Gospels. What a controversial topic. Prior to the discovery of um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi uh, codices, um, which were found in Egypt, um, I think, uh, in, again, sealed jars. Um, There's... The sort of various stories about how they came to be discovered. Um, I'm not 100% sure which one is the actual correct one um, as in terms of how the uh, Nakamati scriptures were actually found. The short version is that they were found, they were translated, these are the Gnostic Gospels, but prior to them we actually had knowledge of them uh, from very, very early in the Christian world. So there was this guy called Uh, St. Irenaeus, who wrote a five-volume treatise called Against Heresies. And uh, his main guy, his his teacher was a guy called Polycarp, and I believe Polycarp uh, learned from... Oh, it was one of the apostles. I want to say Paul, possibly... Um, it's terrible of me that I have forgotten this detail because it actually turns out to be quite important. Um, the short version is we're talking two, two degrees of separation from someone that knew Christ personally. That's how early in the game we are. Um, so Irenaeus's teacher Polycarp learnt from one of the apostles and the apostle obviously learned from Christ directly. So it's pretty close. And anyway, he wrote out this uh, this five-volume set against heresies. And one of the, th- the main things that he's doing is addressing all these rival sects that were cropping up. Um, and in his view, were trying to warp the scriptures in a sort of an anti-Christ way to make them support their philosophies. And so they would, you know, there's might have heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Jesus or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Truth, which is the one that I read out the other week. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's all very interesting because, you know, it's very... Um, it's a hot-button topic. And... How do I want to come at this? Okay, so Irenaeus, right, he writes his volumes against it, and in order to basically talk these things down, he had to talk about them. And so he quotes them, and he refers to them. And the Roman Catholic Church did such a good job suppressing these books that for many thousands of years we actually wouldn't have known about the Gnostic Gospels so thoroughly were they destroyed 
um, and so thoroughly were those sects wiped out, we wouldn't know for them if we wouldn't know about them if it weren't for the writings of Irenaeus himself, in which he refers to them and references them and quotes them, which is fascinating in itself because you know his treatise against them was actually the thing that preserved the script for the parts of those scripts for you know uh, close to two thousand years. Uh, but then, you know, these manuscripts get rediscovered um, in the mid twentieth century, and suddenly they're back in the in the public zeitgeist, and that's what leads to things like the Da Vinci Code and people saying that you know Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and they had a child and blah 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 blah. Um, and it's got Jesus saying and doing all kinds of stuff. And the thing is, these these texts are widely varied. They're written from different periods of time, they're attributed to different people, um, they show multiple different kinds of thought that were uh, very much influenced by, so, uh, I mean, there's there's sort of so-called Gnostic philosophy, There's it, it shows like Hellenist philosophy, Greek, like Neoplatonic philosophy, and quite a lot of it is very much at odds with what's in our synoptic gospels and you know quite rightly in some respects uh it's it's pointed out as being like you know these these are not legitimate things that christ said or did these are you know falsely attributed to apostles that couldn't possibly have written them because they don't show up early enough in history but then you know how do we know that because the church suppressed them so badly i mean you know given the propensity of the Roman Catholics for book burning over its long and sordid history, we can't really know for sure when they were originally penned, who they were penned by, who was preserving them, and uh, whether there's any legitimacy to them at all. And um, People like to make a case for the fact that they can't possibly be legitimate. Having studied them myself, uh, I read some of them and I think, well, that's, you know, quite clearly horse shit because it contradicts things which are in our synoptic gospels. And then I read some others and I'm like, that's a little interesting. And whether you want to say that, you know, that, that it's um, legit or not, I read certain things where I go, well, you know, regardless of whether or not Christ said that, it's certainly something that I could see him saying. Or, you know, perhaps it's just a, a beautiful idea or something that's nice to think about. Um, there's a quote, something like, you know, it's the mark of a, a mark of a free thinker to be able to entertain a thought without buying into it, or it's something like that. I'm paraphrasing terribly, but effectively... I think it's extremely valuable for us to be able to entertain a thought and just kind of, you know, play it out, roll it around, you know, get, just try it and see how it is before dismissing it, you know, and not just dismissing it outright, you know, with without giving it any serious consideration. Because... In a strange way, if if God didn't want us to have 
these scriptures, then we wouldn't. I mean, in some respects, that, that must be the case. The, the timing, the fact that our society has changed in such a way that, you know, it's in, in the mid-20th century that we make two major discoveries, Nag Hammadi and Dead Sea, which just blows the foundation of, of Christianity from an orthodox standpoint wide open. Like, there's just, there's so much, there's so much that uh, we now have access to which we didn't previously have access to. And you won't hear me make a case for... Um, any of these gospels, you know, so-called Gnostic gospels, having primacy over our tried and true Bible, because I don't think you can make a strong case for that. Uh, I think what's interesting is that there are certain things, certain snippets and fragments, certain little bits and pieces that actually line up extremely well with the synoptic gospels and that that's the right way to think of it you know whether or not you think something may or may not be true well your first port of call should be is it in line with the synoptic gospels now the synoptic gospels being matthew mark luke john if it is in line with what's in those then i think it's reasonable to entertain that idea and and you know play around with it at least but if it straight out contradicts uh, our established bible then it it fails to meet the criteria because the the means of validation and verification for the bible are only getting better you know there's more archaeological evidence there's more uh evident like mathematical evidence just in terms of the actual construction of the thing the you know the th Jeez. Chuck Missler, uh, I really want to pick up a copy of his uh, Cosmic Codes, you know, the, all the equidistant letter sequences and crazy stuff in the Bible. Um, you know, he did some amazing work because, you know, for, for the first time in history, we've got access to computers that can, you know, we can just input these manuscripts and have them crunch calculations that people would have previously had to find by hand and as a result we find all these codes and mathematical patterns and coincidences that why well, say coincidences as in literally they coincide um i'm certainly not dismissing them as just by chance because you look at them from a probability or a statistical standpoint and they are impossible to be there by chance and then you then have to go well all right, what's the likelihood that the person writing this contrived to put this in there while being able to retain the message of what they're writing? And it's like, it's impossible. I, you know, there's a great video uh, that talks about the genealogy in um, Matthew, which is by Chuck Missler. So if you go on YouTube and look up Chuck Missler, uh, Jesus genealogy and it's uh, the video is called like amazing sevens in the Bible or something like that and it talks about the fact that so I'm gonna butcher this but it's approximately like this in a little section the section that deals with the genealogy of Christ which um, in the case of 
Matthew, he takes back to Abraham, and in the case of uh, Luke, he takes all the way back to God himself. The number of words used is divisible by seven. The number of nouns used is divisible by seven. The number of verbs used is divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a noun is divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a verb is divisible by seven. Uh, the vocabulary, so the use of uh, particular words is um, divisible by seven. Uh, what else was there? The number of male names is divisible by seven. The number of... So, I mean, it's it's just... A, there's so many. And they're all divisible by seven. And you can just... Even if you're being generous with the probabilities, you start to just add the numbers together and go, could I write this as someone like 2,000 years ago? Could I write this and satisfy this criteria? It's just... It's bonkers. You start looking at this stuff and you it really forces you to reevaluate how you think about uh, scripture in terms of divine inspiration. Because regardless of whether you go, oh, well, it's all just coincidence, you know, it's law of large numbers, you know. I mean, if you want to be, you know, like strict about it, well, pi technically contains not just the entire Bible, but every other Bible and also your life story and everybody else's life story and everything that's ever existed and everything that could ever exist. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But it doesn't really detract from the fact that there are certain things that have been written which have been brought forward in time that have these otherworldly coincidences where you're talking about, you know, the, the notion that that could happen by chance is like one in 50 million or 50 billion in some cases. It's catastrophically huge that it would happen to meet those these criteria just by chance. And that is a very strong means of validation in my view. Yeah, and so I've been on a, a bit of a journey of reading different scripture, and not just Christian scripture, but, you know, I, I read my Bible, and I read the Gnostic Gospels, and I read the Apocrypha, and, you know, then I read, like, outside of Christianity, I read the Bhagavad Gita, I read, um, you know, uh, the Quran, I read Buddhist cones, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff that I'm studying, and what I consistently find is, the one that has the most means of actual validation in ter terms of verifying it historically, archaeologically, theologically, in terms of the content of the actual scripture, like because you can delve into, you know, uh, gematria and look at the mathematical, um, you know, symmetry and patterns that are occurring in this thing. It's so strange because the Bible is such a, a confusing complex contradictory document and yet it has more means of validation and verification than any other uh, book it has one of the finest pedigrees of any book it's the it's the you know there's more copies of this book on earth than there are any other and there's more ancient manuscripts and there's more it's just it's a uh, it's very interesting to me um so I'm coming up on an hour here, and this has largely just been a long meandering about the structure of the Bible. Um, is there anything else that I need to say about it?
Probably not at this stage. I mean, it's sure, I'm sure it's a conversation we'll come back to many times again. Um, if you have any questions or suggestions or topics, um, please hit me up on Twitter, at BillDarkLighter, um, or you can also hit me up on Instagram, at BillDarkLighter. So I um, hope you enjoyed today's meandering episode, and hopefully it actually records and uploads correctly so I don't have to experience the frustrations that I experienced last time. All right. All the best. God bless.